0: I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast, Will Schleifer. Will, I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you very much for coming out. So we have a little bit of our shared history. I want to talk about that first. You know, I've known you for the better part of 10 years. I think we have some professional acquaintances in common and
1: know mm-hmm. a few of the same people. And I heard you speak. I heard you do a CEU event uh like probably 6, 7 years ago. It was fantastic. Yeah. Don't remember exactly what what it was on, but it was in it was in Boca at I think the Hilton or something, but it was really good. You were really funny and uh, really interesting. And and I love that. You know, I, lo- I love just kind of natural presentations, organic stuff. You know, it wasn't boring and it wasn't all PowerPointy. Um, it was real, you know, and I kind of I, I try to surround myself with just real organic people that that know what they're doing and it, and it comes out naturally. It's been my experience that, you know, the therapists out there, the clinicians out there that are so wordy and so textbooky, you kind of get lost in it, you know? And I like funny, I like real, I like a little dry, I like sarcastic people. I'm from New York, so originally, so that's just kind of what I'm used to. And uh, I like to be around people that obviously have a passion for this, and it comes out that way. It comes out naturally you know and that's that's what i love about some of the people i work with and the people that that i train with and and it just that's what i love when i saw you speak at that time i'm like all right that guy's cool
0: you know i didn't see that coming yeah and uh thank you man i really appreciate that yeah. a lot that's a really kind thing to say one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about was i know that you were trained by Judy Crane and She's someone that I hold in very high regard, and for people who are unaware, Judy Crane is really one of the top preeminent trauma therapists, definitely in this area, and has a national presence, and she's the founder of a program in Ocala called The Refuge, and another one in the same area called The Guest House, and she started her own modality of trauma training known as Spirit to Spirit. And I was surprised to learn, I didn't realize that you had studied under her, that you're also one of the most prolific students as far as
1: probably attending the most number of her module. Thank you so much for the kind words and everything like that. It's kind of blown me away. You know, she is this oracle. She's this like mythical, like figure in our field. And she is, you know, an enormous big deal nationally and even now globally. Back in 2015, I kind of went through my own crisis. My dad was dying and he inevitably passed away on December 29th, 2015. And I kind of went through my own emotional crisis. I tried all different types of things and nothing was really working. I was, you know, I've been working in the field for, you know, over a decade. I kind of tried to use the my own skills and my own tools and nothing was making me feel better. I became angrier and and more bitter and detached and and my wife and I my wife works in the field too she's been in outreach for also about a decade her name's Crystal Schleifer and she works for Lakeview and it just so happened that she went to the ITCC conference I think it was like 2016 or something or maybe 2017 and she heard this little 4 foot 11 woman from Philly with her Philly accent talk about trauma and what it really is and what it really does. And my life at that time was in pretty bad shape. I mean, I was kind of unraveling. I was working in a facility where I wasn't really passionate about what I was doing at the time. Didn't even know if I wanted to be a therapist anymore. I had some really strange thoughts of just getting in my car and packing my things and like leaving the family. I just had a baby and I was pretty detached from him. And I had some really dark thoughts of just packing up my car, driving to Mexico and renting jet skis which is crazy, right? So my wife goes to this conference and she hears Judy speak. And I've known of Judy for a a while. And she heard Judy speak about trauma and all these things. And my wife literally called me from that conference and said, I don't care what we need to do. I don't care how much it costs or how we're going to support this, but you need to call this woman. You need to work with her in some kind of capacity. So my first response wasn't kind. Let me just put that out there. In the emotional position I was in at the time, I wasn't exactly like, yeah, sure, babe. Let me uh, let me go and call her. There was some resistance there. But when my wife came home, we sat, we talked and I picked up the, the hundred pound phone and I made the call and I called kind of her right hand of spirit to spirit cat and uh, we had a really good long talk. you know cat was really instrumental at that moment because she was just soft enough but also just challenging enough that I felt comfortable in telling her what was going on in my life at the moment And that was really important because if it was anything more soft, I don't know if I would have done it and if it was anything harder if she was a little bit more challenging I think I'd be scared. So it was the perfect medium for me to open up and say, "Oh, okay. Let me uh, let me see what I could do here." So we spoke for a while. From my memory, I think then I spoke to Judy, and Judy told me, "Okay, she calls me kiddo, even though you know I'm 41 years old." Uh, At the time, I was like 36. But still, she calls me kiddo, which I thought was pretty endearing. She said, okay, well, we have our next module is in uh, Arkansas at Capstone. And I want you to come out and see for yourself kind of thing. So I said, Arkansas? And she said, yeah, Searcy, Arkansas. And I said, okay. I've never been there, nor do I ever thought I would be. But I went and did it. And uh, so her training's. modules can be all over the place and they're at all these incredible facilities all over the country and so I was I went out there and it was it was an incredible experience within 48 hours I mean within 48 hours I felt safe I felt like this was the magic pill I'll be honest I think the difference between her trainings and a lot of other trauma trainings is you do your own work. So I got there with my computer and my notebook and I'm thinking this is like school and it wasn't. We did our own work. We did our own assignments, we did our own projects and it was it was a real release and relief for me and and I was sold. I mean I was sold from from that point on you're supposed to do five modules. I feel like I did more. And then I kind of co-facilitated some intensives with her, which is has which blown me away. I'm sitting there and I'm co-facilitating these retreats because Spirit to Spirit does these too. And this feeling of overwhelming honor and privilege to be doing this with her and her son, Tom, is also like incredible. I actually just finished doing a training with him, we went up to Connecticut, and we trained module two, and there were some incredibly talented people there, and uh, it's just an honor, my, like my life is just, it's just, I'm blown away, so I start this process, uh, module two, and and then I just keep going, you know, I'm, I'm just like that, I just keep going, and I'm learning, and I'm absorbing, it's taken me to a, a, a different place. Uh, that's all I could say. It's really interesting how for
0: clinicians, oftentimes there's a a dark period. Yeah. It either could move you into a place of burnout and yeah. could really be like the end of your career, or it could be a springboard into some exceptional acceleration, of your skills and growth and development as a clinician. I had a very similar experience, Uh, not entirely similar, but, you know, in nature, I had Mm -hmm. um, a really profound insomnia, and it was about 2017, it just Mm kind of came about, it actually started with a bat infestation in our home. Wow. Yeah, no. That's scary. Yeah, it was unbelievable, man. Okay. Yeah, it was like a colony of bats that had taken up residence in our uh, attic. Wow. Yeah, and so one day I just hear like scratching of the wall or something, and I, you know, pop my head up there. You know how when you see something and you, you can't really believe what it is that you're looking at, you're not really sure. Your eyes are seeing it, but your brain can't register
1: it. Cause it's yeah, so that's fri- That's frightening.
0: Yeah, there was, like, these black dots on the wall, and they started, like, moving, you know, these little blobs. And I looked up over the top of me, and there was one, like, looking (laughs) like right over my head. Yeah, I'd sell my house. Yeah, I'd be gone. So I thought about it. Yeah. So I come down the ladder, and my wife is there, and, you know, and she's like, did you see anything? (laughs) I'm like, I don't. (laughs) No,
1: no, I didn't see anything.
0: like, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I think there's bats up there. And, you know, it's funny, like, I turned my attention to my dog, She's a American bulldog. Yeah. And I looked at her and I'm like, You have one fucking job. Like, how do you you know what I mean? Like Well that.
1: Well your dog's not stupid. No, no. You know, your dog's your your dog's petrified. It doesn't matter if it's an American bulldog, right? Well, it wasn't that she was scared, it was just that it would have been cool if she alerted us to the insurgency that was going on. Yeah, but if you open up like a bag of Pringles, you know, a mile away from her she'd hear that
0: exactly yeah
1: so yeah. i'm just
0: i'm kind of wondering why this other thing was going on and yeah. we weren't i practice forgiveness here but yeah so uh, it was a lot and anyway i had a lot of difficulty sleeping after that yeah because you know they're nocturnal yep. and be at night i would wonder can i hear them rustling around up there or is it just mm-hmm. in my head we had a tremendous difficulty getting them out because they're protected species Wow. During the uh, bat mating season, because they're they're an important part of like the ecology in that area, because they feed on mosquitoes and stuff. So what they don't want is during the mating season for you to evict them. That's what it's mm-hmm. called evicting the colony. Yeah, that usually implies that someone's paying rent or something. But in, in this case, it's considered an eviction. So they don't want you to evict the colony of bats because you'll leave behind like flightless babies and they'll die. Yeah. So they what they want you to do is to continue to host the colony until the flightless babies are ready to go and that takes about three months.
1: Oh, that's, that's really nice of you. You know, just keeping them, you know, there and everything. Yeah.
0: I stopped sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> that had to be addressed. So we ended up getting a special permit from Tallahassee mm-hmm. and... Got them out of there. You know, it took months uh, to get rid of them and then to clean up. And it was a whole expensive mess. But there was something about that period that kind of springboarded this insomnia mm-hmm. and like kind of anxiety that went with it. And it, it took a while for that to subside. I had to do a lot of work. And, yeah. you know, it's like you. I um, To do something that I would have never have ordinarily have done, like mm-hmm. it pushes you that far. For your own wellness. Right. And like you, I had been to talk therapy many times. Yeah. But if you're a therapist and you go to talk therapy, there are ways you can cheat. And sometimes you need something that's going to be a little bit of a push. And I went to one of those experiential groups called TLC. Right. One of the weekends. Yeah. And I did it. And it's really unconventional. But it gave me, like you said, that push. Yeah. To, it's a great place to start to kind of motivate and to see life as being filled with like greater opportunities and stuff. So I did that and things really kind of shifted from there. I took on a life coach, something else I would never have done. Mm -hmm. And you know, it changed a lot of things for me. And I think had I not done all those things and gone through all that awful period, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be here doing all this now. Private practice,
1: so there's a silver lining, right? There's a silver lining with the bats, you know, as frightening and weird and, and uncomfortable as that is, you know, and, and that's where I get a little emotional. It's like my dad passed away and I feel like he's still kind of with me in all this because I would have not been here and I and I would have not done this training and, and I would have not become a trauma therapist, you know?
0: A few months after all that happened, my mom passed away. Oh, Sorry she had, to hear that. Yeah, she had been sick with Alzheimer's for a long time oh. and then passed. So it was all like a culmination of just yeah. bad events that led to this like dark period. But I right. I hear you with that. Yeah. And like you, I had to, I asked myself a lot of
1: questions during that period about who I was, where this was going. Am I good? Am I good at what I do? You know? Do I really see myself as as a therapist, I mean, you know, you go to these dark places, you really, we're human. Am I useful? Am I, you're right, right. Am I useful? Am I effective? Or am I just another, you know, South Florida clinician? And, you know, and this is my life. And this is, and that's fine. You know, that's, that is fine. If if you're cool with that, but, but I wasn't, and I, and I became not cool with that. And I think the same thing for you, you know, if you have that
0: kind of self-reflective existential bent in the way that you see the world, there's going to be a lot of self-examination as a clinician, if you're that type of therapist. Right. At some point, we all will question our own validity, our own worth, our own impact on other people. And I think most good clinicians at some point or other in their careers have felt like frauds.
1: Well, it's funny, uh, I think there's a couple clips out there on YouTube, uh, even Judy, you know, she'll speak, I think it was a couple years ago, but she spoke at a conference and she literally started the conference with, I feel like a fraud, I'm, I'm a criminal, I'm a forger, all these things. I mean, she still feels like that at times. What's, what's so effective about that is to talk about that, put that out there and expose it, which is hard for a lot of people, a lot of people. Well, that's that whole Brene Brown
0: thing, right? right? That vulnerability is really the opposite of shame. Exactly. And the moment you reach that place where you can say it out loud without filtering, yeah, it just takes all of the power out of the shameful piece. And then you really, you're in a better position to heal. I mean, this is what we do with our clients, right? Yeah. That's kind of at the core of the trauma work.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's... It's so challenging, trauma work and and people getting vulnerable and talking about things that they've never talked about. And it's just remarkable to see how people can do that and keep doing that. It's really courageous stuff. And and when you look at the patient or person or anyone and they tell you what they've been through, on the flip side, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a CPA or I'm an attorney or I'm a nurse, two kids. And I live in a nice house or whatever, you know, it's just, it's remarkable. Like how, how did you do that? So my hope and and, and what I do is for the, for the person to see that there, they are, you are a survivor, you are remarkable, you are resilient. Two things can happen at the same time. You can experience all these traumatic things, but you're also this incredible person and you got to look at both. You have to keep looking at both.
0: I'm a big proponent of EMDR. Mm-hmm. That's one of my main modalities that mm-hmm. I use. And after getting the initial EMDR training, which is really where a lot of people stop. Right. I went on and I continued to work with this lady, Rachel Starr, the consultant, mm-hmm. to get the Mdria certification because she was doing this. Kind of specialized attachment focused EMDR. It's based on Laurel Purnell's work. And I really wanted to learn more about that because I believe in it. Mm -hmm. And the thing about EMDR that really fascinated me so much, beyond the fact that it was a protocol and there was an order to it and it was systemic, which I really liked Mm -hmm. because there's kind of, it's measurable what you're doing with people. But the mechanism inside of it is really shifting the thought that that the healing element is really in shifting the thought around what the trauma means. And it's like if somebody hurts me, it's not so much what I think about them that causes me all this pain. Right. It's what that event says about me.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And when you can kind of like shift that from I'm weak Mm -hmm. I'm insignificant. Mm -hmm. I am unseen and unheard. I am not strong. All the different attributes that we direct towards ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get past that into that. That's not really the truth. That's not really that is actually an irrational belief and not an accurate depiction of who you are in that scenario immediately there's a downshifting of anxiety and distress that the person experiences once they kind of hit that. Yeah. And all of a sudden the desensitizing starts, they can talk about it more freely and then reprocessing, you're just on your way, you know? Yeah. And I was curious, what is the mechanism in the spirit to spirit method? Like, how does it work?
1: How does it work? Well, like I said, I mean, we're all doing our own work and it really starts immediately, you know, so typically, you know, we would get together for, you know, a mod, a module and, um, we're in, you know, this big group and we just start kind of talking, start kind of conversing. Judy kind of puts out an immediate assignment that we're all working on and she kind of knows our history. So she knows where to go. I mean, this is this is like challenging direct work. You know, this isn't any, you know, this isn't butterflies and rainbows. And, and we're all together, and we just start kind of presenting our work together. And then she's a wizard, so then she just starts kind of, she's pretty challenging. I mean, this, the, you know, she's, she kind of goes right to it, and for release and relief. And then you feel safe, and then you feel together, when someone's sharing about sexual abuse that they've never told anybody ever, and then all of a sudden, that happened to me, and that happened to me, and that happened to me. And there's a unity there, and they f- and you feel validated for the first time, and that's kind of the work that I do at where I work now. A lot of people come in not knowing. They don't know what they don't know. Especially people that have been abused as children, like you said, you know, when a child's abused, they feel it's like this feeling of, what about me? Is there a sign on me that says, abuse me? Um, like, what about me gives you the right to do what you've done to violate me? What did I do wrong? Did I like it? Did I, you know, did, was I happy about it? Right? Right. And again, you're working with people that are now in their 40s, 50s, 60s. I ask them a lot to to put your six-year-old hat on, put your seven-year-old hat on, bring in your pictures of yourself at six, seven years old. You know, it's a lot of inner child work and things like that. It's a safe place. You know, that's the first thing that happens. The first module with her is... She has this thing called nuts and bolts, which is basically what is trauma and and, and what does it look like and what does it feel like? And there's because there's so many tenets of trauma. You know, it's from a societal view, people from a societal view, not from our view, but from, from a societal view When you think of trauma, you think of 9 11, you think of military, you think of an accident, things like that. And those are very traumatic things. And that's where EMDR is really useful and effective. But neglect and abandonment, you know, uh, grief and loss, bullying, especially now. You know, when we were kids, I'm 41, you know, you were bullied from like 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Right. Got your ass kicked a little bit, you know, and then you went home to your mom and you cried and then your mom would tell you, all right, go outside and, you know, figure it out. Which you know may or may not be traumatic in that in that situation. Or you could stay home and watch Sanford and Son. That too, right? And you could stay home and just watch TV and avoid and become avoidant, and, and then you have an avoidant attachment. But that, that's a whole other that's all other conversation. So now there's cyberbullying and and there's social media. So when you're bullied as a kid in the cafeteria, it's not a hundred people. It's, it could be a million people. And for a 10 year old girl or a 10 year old boy, that's their life in that moment. You know, that, that is the most important thing that's going on in that moment. And it's life shattering, right? It's uh, that's it. My life is over. And that's why we're seeing such an increase in childhood suicide and, and all, and, and all these things because kids, you know, they, uh, they don't know what to do when something like that happens. So there's that, there's, there's betrayal, there's, you know, um, losing a career, losing a, a marriage, cheating, infidelity, um, m- medical issues. You know, I've had so many patients over the years that have, that are cancer survivors, you know, I'm taught, you know, and on the brink of, of death or thinking they're going to die. That's a lot to stomach you know that's a lot to feel and, and from from again from a society standpoint it's you know it's like all right man keep going you know keep trucking along you know life isn't fair you know put you know strap your you know boots on or whatever the saying is etc but it hurts i mean it really hurts and it puts people in really scary places and that's where you know then then you have these maladaptive behaviors that happen and process addictions and self-medicating and because if they don't do that if they don't medicate then suicide becomes an option right they, they you could go crazy like judy says we get to a place of literally going crazy and crazy has many faces you could go psychiatric um, but you could also become very angry, you can make impulsive decisions, you could, you know, walk into your job one day and say, screw this, I'm out of here, not thinking about your mortgage or responsibilities, irrational decisions. But I don't, I really don't think anyone wants to do that. You know, no one wants to go to prison, no one wants to hurt anyone. I do believe that there's goodness in the world and people are are good, but they need to self-medicate. And then hopefully, you know, they come to treatment or they come to a therapist that, that knows this and and can validate their feelings that they're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. There's a lot that's happened to you. There's a difference. And I think that's kind of the mechanism, you know, to feel validated, to feel that you're not alone, to feel that um, what you're going through, a lot of people have gone through and we are going to go, we're going to, we're going to do this together. So I feel like that's kind of been the mechanism. So tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing at Beachway. Sure. Um, So I've been, um, I actually been at Beachway twice. I was at Beachway back in 2010 to 2013. And and then I went on to kind of work at a few other facilities and private practice and other things. And I came back to Beachway about three years ago. On a part-time level, I started noticing people coming in with a lot more than just I drink too much. Or, or I'm a heroin addict. You're, you're regular chemical dependency type people. People were coming in with things that were grave in nature. You know, they were coming in with a lot of trauma and things. And I said to myself, huh, why don't, why don't I just start like a trauma group here? That would be pretty cool. So I started one. It worked out. I mean, people really enjoyed it. They liked it. They were scared, but they enjoyed it. And then we added another one and then we added another one. And, and, you know, for the past about two years, we've had, you know, three, two and a half, three hour trauma groups a week. It's not the whole population, of course. It's, it's a real trauma track. And typically a patient would come in. They'll be assessed. They'll have a primary therapist. They'll do they'll complete a trauma assessment and their primary therapist will let me know that person is ready that person is stable enough, mature enough, etc., that um they would they want to join the trauma track. Typically it, it's it's an investment, it's a commitment because as we know trauma is not a 30-day fix. I mean, it's not even a 90-day fix. It takes time. Uh but we do a lot of work. Typically a patient would stay 16 to 90 days to complete the whole trauma track and then when they leave we do the best we can to kind of pair them up with a, a with a skilled trauma therapist. Could be MDR. There's other different certifications of trauma, you know. So, but we do the best we can with getting them someone that knows knows this and you know could treat this and maintain it because trauma responses are going to continue to happen. You know the you know things happen in our life. I tell my patients all the time that. Just because you did this work doesn't mean the world stopped. You know, the crisis will continue to happen. Tragedy will continue to happen. You know, you got to come out of here with a different operating system. You got to come out of here empowered, knowing what's real, what's not real, right? And knowing how to manage your emotions. Be aware. Be aware of what's going on.
0: Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about it when you and I were talking originally and you were telling me about your background with Judy and the work and the program that you put together at Beachway. And I was thinking to myself, how fortunate for the patients, because when you're going to an insurance based treatment Mm -hmm. center. Yeah. And you're here in the Silicon Valley of drug rehabs, you know, South Florida, where there's so many different programs. Yeah it's a real crapshoot where you end up because if you're going blind and you're looking online at these programs, yeah, a lot of them sort of look the same or similar. Right. And so the difference between landing in a place with someone with your credentialing who can really, really help you manage and look at and treat these comorbid trauma issues, this post-traumatic stress and all the related features, yeah, along with the substance use disorder, Versus what would happen if you were in another program where they didn't have people with those kind of specialties or someone who was equipped to look at their history through a trauma lens or to even really be able to properly conceptualize the case. Right. And I feel like oftentimes those opportunities are lost in programs where people are not adequately trained or the trauma-informed care or the trauma-focused isn't there. Right. And so I look at you and what you're able to to bring to these people and I consider them to be, you're really fortunate if you end up at Beachway and yeah. get to participate in the trauma track.
1: Well, we've been told that a lot, you know, unfortunately that, you know, most treatment centers, and when I say most, I mean like the high majority, I think like 90% or something like that. Not saying that they don't have skilled people. I think, I, I think a lot of facilities have really skilled people, uh, but, you know, I mean... I know 10, maybe 15 treatment centers in this whole country that that really do what I do. Well, and the good thing
0: about the fact that you're doing it and that there are other places doing it too, is that it puts pressure yeah. on everybody else. Yeah. Because if we're now saying that trauma-informed care and working on these, these comorbid, post-traumatic and family of origin traumas is a big part of the pathway to a successful substance use disorder recovery, yeah. then that becomes the standard of care. And so if you're not offering that, you're kind of on the dull edge, you know, not on the cutting edge, but the dull edge.
1: I mean, I say this a lot, you know, I think there's a big difference between giving a patient, you know, a relapse packet and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, when someone's coming in with all these complex issues, and you're talking to them from a 12-step framework or a relapse prevention framework, it's like, how many times have they heard this? Especially your quintessential person that has been to treatment many, many times, right? And they're coming in, it's like, oh, here we go again. Another, Another relapse packet or another relapse timeline when what I really want to talk about is how my father or my uncle Violated me when I was six years old, and no one's so no one's asking the hard questions.
0: Well, and interestingly enough, that would really be what was in the relapse packet, right? Yeah, it was yeah. accurate. It was kind of like trigger number one when I hear a voice that sounds like my mom's, exactly. or when a large man is looming over me, or yeah. all of these different things yeah. that are. Reminders of past experiences and trigger people because the trauma response—that's a—that
1: is a relapse trigger. It It totally is. I mean, they're they're they correlate with each other completely. So you know, Beachway. You know, in the past year, it's not just me doing these three trauma groups. We have another incredible clinician, Gigi, that does. Uh, two tra- two kind of lighter trauma groups for for folks that are a little bit more mental health, a little bit more fragile. You know, my group is pretty intense. My track is pretty intense, so that could be a little much for people. So we make sure that. You know, a lot of people go to go with her. They do the same work, but it's a little slower and it's not as intense. We do somatic experience with another clinician. There's light breath work, things like that. You know, we're having a CEU event in a few weeks. I'm actually doing it with uh, Brandon Lutman. He's he's really skilled. I mean, he's really talented guy. So I'm really excited about that. I'm going to that. Cool. By the way, it's on the December 10th. 10th. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be really cool. And we're going to have it kind of in a format of a conversation, really casual um, and just kind of talking. And it's going to be pretty dynamic. And we want it to be really open with everybody and lots of questions. And, you know, we're just going to have a conversation about this. Because it is, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's kind of been failure in the industry in some kind of ways. I mean, you know, you have this opiate epidemic in the last 10 years that's killed like a million people. Uh, Why are we not doing trauma work everywhere? And I mean, like real trauma work, groups and tracks and, and more EMDR and more somatic experience and all these things. And the reality is, is that in order for your clinicians to be able to do this, There's trainings and trainings cost money. And uh, I think the treatment centers need to make a real investment in their staff to be better, to learn more. And skilled people cost money. And skilled people cost
0: money, right? It's interesting. I'm starting to hear, and I'm not really in the loop on this so much, but I'm hearing about it, that the reimbursements, the insurance reimbursements for substance use disorder treatment are starting to improve. It's that's the, good. The landscape of that apparently is getting better. That's good. I'm not really sure what the figure is or mm-hmm. the mechanism behind that. I don't know if the you know what I'd be I'd be talking out of my ear, but I'm hearing that that it's improved. And if that's the case, then maybe that raises the bar for everybody in terms of paying for the actual technology that works.
1: I hope so. You know, I mean that's that's our hope. But yes, skilled people cost money. All this does cost money. As a treatment center owner or the executive people that, that own the, these facilities, I mean, they have to make an investment in their people. Judy right now, she owned the refuge. She sold it, but she, she owns the guest house. Every single person there from the cook to the cleaners to the landscaper are all trauma trained like I am. Every single person. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. When I first visited, I knew who Judy was, but I became more aware of her when I went to visit the refuge in Ocala. And it was somewhere around like
1: 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. I was working for the Seminole tribe at the time. Yeah, that was like the golden era of that facility, I think, right? Back then. I was a person who
0: was responsible for putting together the Behavioral health network of facilities and things that the tribe was using. And so I heard about this trauma based program in Ocala. Mm -hmm. And to me, the environment was perfect for the population. The fact that it was long term and trauma based, I mean, you're really hitting on everything. I'm like, this is a perfect environment. And I went out there to tour. Mm -hmm. And when I toured these facilities, and I'm kind of checking things out, one of the things I like to do is I like to be able to talk to patients. Mm-hmm. And some facilities will let you do it and some won't. Right. And some will let you talk to the clients in the presence of a staff member to see what you're up to. And some will just let you have the conversation. And that's another thing that I look at because, you know, programs that are really confident about the work that they're doing. Yeah. They'll let you talk to the clients without staff present because they
1: just know. They just know. They just yeah. Know
0: yeah. And that was what it was
1: mm-hmm.
0: at the refuge. They, mm-hmm. you know, they brought this woman out to talk to me. So a move that a lot of the programs did was, if they were going to bring someone out to talk to me, it was usually the star patient, Yeah. right? Yep, <laughs> Mister Rehabatron, who knew all the things to say and yeah. could be very charming and persuasive. The kind yeah. of person that will really do well in the phone rooms of South Florida once they leave treatment. Uh-huh. Know, that that kind of an individual. So. Mm-hmm. And that's not who they paired me with. No. It was someone who had pretty significant trauma history, was not entirely and completely stable at the point. And, yeah. and this woman came and talked, and she had had multiple past treatments, had been everywhere. And she said that this visit to... The refuge was the best treatment experience that she'd had and that her complex PTSD was really being addressed in addition to the mental health and all the rest of it yeah. in a comprehensive way that she hadn't experienced before. I was so impressed with this woman and what she had to say because she was in it in a very authentic and genuine way. And that was the kind of confidence they had in their program to let me talk to somebody Who was still being treated and I admired them for that and you know we signed up right away and we worked with them for a long time right and referred a lot of clients and had some pretty decent outcomes right so I just have this really high opinion of her yeah and the work that she does and when I heard about the spirit to spirit training I yeah I guess there's a part of me that's actually sort of envious that I never got to do it and
1: You still can, right? That's true. You still can. And, you know, so she, you know, I don't know how she does it. I I mean, she's in her 70s, right? And, uh, you know, she's the co-founder and and CEO of of the Guest House now. And that's also in Ocala. And it's just this this incredible, beautiful facility. And they're doing uh, that same work. Very skilled people. Like I said, I just finished uh, a training up in Connecticut, Module Two, with her son Tom, and think the world of him, but don't let him know that he's an Eagles fan. So you know, I'm a Giants fan. So it's, it's why are they always Eagles fans? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know, but um, but he's uh, he's he's become he's become a real friend at this point, not just a colleague, not just a mentor, and he's incredible. So. They got spirit to spirit going on and they got these retreats, you know, all over the country and, and modules and then the guest house and it's mind boggling. It really is. It's just a lot going on. But um no, she she, she sold the refuge, I think, in two thousand thirteen.
0: Well, even that, during this period where South Florida is the silicon valley of substance abuse treatment
1: centers in the country. Yeah. yeah. And who goes and builds a program? in Ocala from what I know and you should it'd be really cool if you interviewed her but from what I know I mean she started her career down here in 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 the Mecca right Silicon Valley of Treatment she started her career I think at Wayside yes yeah um, and she started it there and they, and they were getting women uh, from jail and from you know all those kind of things and girls were coming in with just intense stuff and she started doing experiential things. That was where I yeah. heard about her first, I think, yeah. was, was Wayside House. Yeah. She was working at Wayside House, and she started doing these kind of unorthodox, existential, experiential things. Obviously, the women loved it, and, and she was seeing real results. And then I guess she left there and became a consultant for a little while, and people come to her, right? They've come to her, hey, Judy, you should do this. And she would be like, no, I don't know, you know, and then she'd end up doing it. And then people would come to her and say, Judy, you you should probably do like retreats. She's like, I don't know. And then she'd end up doing it. And I think people came to her finally and was said something to her like, you know, Judy, we have we found this property somewhere in in, in Ocala. And, And she said. I'm not moving to Ocala. What are you, nuts? I have this nice condo on the beach and down here, and I have love of my life down here, and why why the hell would I move to Ocala? But I think, obviously, she went there, and she took a few people from down here that were really near and dear to her that bought in and, and did the same work, and she went to Ocala, and the rest is history, man. I mean, when you have a product, right, and you're skilled, People come, people just come and and it sells itself and and people recover because it's different and it's new and it works. Well, that was my whole, my point really
0: was the confidence that someone would have to have when all the treatment centers are down here in South Florida. Big
1: risk, huge
0: risk to open something way up there. And they
1: were self-pay. They were self-pay for you know th- this whole that whole time. I, I mean that's just it's it's remarkable to me
0: on a massive property, massive right on a massive property with a huge overhead. So you wonder about all of that. Unbelievable.
1: And, and they just went and did it, and it was a huge success. You know, and she's you know she wrote the book, the trauma heart, kind of based on her life and, and, and her experience at the refuge and stuff like that. But now you know she it's all about the guest house and spirit to spirit and that's a success too. Again, she started, I think the guest house. she was already like 68 years old or something like. That. I mean that's unbelievable. What 68 year old person decides, all right, let's let's just start this whole thing again on a different scale. It's because Guest House, I think, is a little bit more high end, affluent demographic. That's a lot to do, man. I think now she just turned 76 and she's still working. She's still doing groups. She's still managing staff. She's still traveling. Pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, it's definitely inspirational, isn't know? it? I'll be lucky if I'm living at King's Point with you at seventy. <laughs> <laughs> King's Point is, you know, like uh fifty-five it was it's like a seventy and over community in Boca. There was actually a good documentary on Kings Point. Are you serious? Yeah, oh my God. You should you need to watch that. It's really depressing though. Sorry.
0: My father in law, who passed away a couple of years ago, lived there.
1: My dad lives in Century Village. Okay. Which I think is a similar a similar vibe. Yeah. I mean, I'll be lucky if I'm there and kind of hanging out. I mean, everything in the last three years has just been really a blessing. We have been able to reach a lot of people. I think about 300 patients have been through my trauma track at Beachway and I get text messages from a lot of them and emails and thank yous and pictures of of themselves of what their life is now and it's like we're really repairing it's not just repairing the patient right we're repairing the family we're repairing all these things again it's not just me we have an incredible family program we have all this awesome support staff people our clinical director Carrie Carlton i call her the unicorn she struggles with compliments sometimes but she is because i wouldn't be able to do any of this if i didn't have the staff that i have that we have that supports this that bought into this right if i had staff that were resistant to this or thought it was bullshit then i wouldn't be here i'm a big fan of your discharge planner helena yeah yeah she's she's a doll i really like her a lot yeah she's i mean everyone i mean she's she's incredible i mean she works so hard with us and with the patients and it just seems like our staff over there, we really go above and beyond and it shows the results are there.
0: It's kind of like if that's a reflection of who works there, because I've yeah. spoken to her on the phone a few times, referrals for aftercare clients and things like that. Yeah. Such a personable, nice individual. If that's like a reflection yeah. of who works there, then you know it's, they're great people. Right. So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to get somebody into Beachway or something like that,
1: or someone wanted a tour or find out more about it, mm-hmm. how would we go about doing that? John's our admissions director, John Reardon. He's another one. I mean, the guy just doesn't stop. He basically does the tours, I think, or he'll facilitate it. You just give him a call and he'll schedule it. and we're open to do that kind of walk around the facility and show you everything we're a beautiful facility i mean we're in west palm and it's like a compound and really nice yeah i mean it's really simple so you just give us a call and schedule it and come by and it's a family business still it has that very warm feel and you can get it all through the internet yeah it's all on our website beachway.com yep mm-hmm. gotcha and it's really simple. We tr- we try to not complicate things. We try to make it a smooth process for family, for the patient, all that kind of stuff. Are you doing any private practice work or anything like that? I have private practice in the evening and private practice on Friday. If somebody wanted to work with you, how would they go about getting in touch with you? I'm a really bad self-promoter. I don't even think I have my website anymore. Be honest with you, it's really word of mouth. It really is, you know, like for example, I'll give you my business card and you have my number and you know cuz I don't have that much time. So gotcha. I'm pretty selective in in who I who I take. I just don't have the time. I'm at Beachway, you know, 9 8 8:30 <coughs> to 4:30 Monday through Thursday. And uh I do have two little kids and um I can't come home at nine o'clock every night that, that I figured out already, you know, so I I gotta, you know, I gotta be pretty selective with, with who I take. And, you know, for the most part, my private practice has been full of people that are committed. I mean, they're really vested. And typically my private practice is mostly people with a lot of time in recovery. Like they have eight, 10, 12 years. And, uh, And there's just so much of 12-step recovery that is going to heal you. I love 12-step recovery, obviously, but, you know, this work, trauma work, it's not a fourth step. It's just not.
0: It's really interesting because that has been a lot my experience, too. Yeah. So initially I got involved in working with the trauma population, uh, probably like a lot of people do, working with substance use disorders, yeah, in treatment first mm-hmm. and then you know specializing from there and what I find a lot is that there are people in long term recovery who are coming for therapy to address issues that have never really been addressed throughout the duration of their sobriety mm-hmm. and I think that's what it is it just kind of comes up because there was this issue or something that had been neglected yeah. and staying sober and it's it's almost like sort of a typical profile it'll be somebody who is usually doing well business wise yep uh, sober for a period of time doing well business wise they have the friends uh, family is restored they live in a nice home somewhere but there's something with the interpersonal relationships right that is problematic and difficult to sustain and that's where the trauma keeps coming. Something is being recreated and that's where they're coming for therapy for.
1: Well, I just, I, I mean, I just think it's really simple, right? So let's say you're, you're a guy or you're, you're a kid coming out of treatment or a person, you know, an adult coming out of treatment. You have a sponsor and you sit down with that sponsor and you're sober and you're going to meetings and you're going through the motions and everything's good and you get to the fourth step. There's a lot of things there that you may or may not share, but who you're telling that to a sponsor typically isn't a therapist. So you're sharing all these things and the sponsor says, I'm sorry, me too. Okay. I mean, that that's cool. But there's no process really with that. And there's no real therapy with that because your sponsor is not your therapist. So it just feels incomplete. It's if the person of the patient or whoever told their sponsor, more likely than not, they don't. In addition to that, a lot of people come into this process
0: and don't realize how much trauma they have that too, because these experiences have been normalized for them. I remember when we were reviewing the EMDR assessments Mm -hmm. and we're kind of going through timeline. One of the things that Rachel Starr told me, she said, when you're asking about early childhood, don't ask someone, Hey, do you have early childhood trauma? Ask them if they ever remember feeling, that there was a period of time in which they felt that they were
1: unloved or uncared for. That's, that's really cool that you brought that up. So like some of the questions that I've been trained to ask, right, is who made you dinner? Who brushed your hair? Who taught you how to ride a bike? What was school like? What did you do on the weekends? I mean, these are really simple questions, but, you know, you, it's un, it's unbelievable. You start asking those questions to your patients and they start crying because no one was there no one was there to to teach them how to ride a bike no one was there to have dinner with them and that's not necessarily that they were poor or something that could just mean their parents were working every single day and they were raised by a nanny let's say or or the parents weren't there right maybe maybe dad was an alcoholic maybe mom had mental health issues that's another big trauma piece you know my mom is always sad mommy's always in bed child it's like I'm not good enough for mommy mommy's mad at me when that's really not at all what's going on but that's what the child believes and that's what creates this narrative this narrative thing is a big deal so I was watching this Jake Burton thing on uh, HBO the guy that basically invented or you know started the snowboarding sport And I'm watching this documentary, it was on a couple weeks ago, and it looked so fun, snowboarding. And I've never, ever in my life been on a mountain in the wintertime. I've never gone skiing, I've never gone snowboarding. And if you ask me, hey, Will, you want to go skiing? My first response is, nope, don't like it. I've never been. But I've taken on, I've adopted this narrative that really came from my parents, who hated cold weather and hated snow, they would always say, no, we don't like that. So I've I've adopted that. I don't like it either. And that's not true. I've never been snowboarding or skiing. I probably would love it. You know what I mean? So it's it's things like that also. These mixed messages, these toxic messages, these these messages that weren't even said to you. Limiting messages. Limiting, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. A lot on. going on. Just to give perspective,
0: all these modules, six modules, seven yeah. modules. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like a week worth of yeah. all of your time, full days. Full of, days. And this is on top of having gotten a master's degree. Right. Having done two years of supervision for licensure. Correct. Yeah. This is after all of that. This is on top of all of that. And yeah. that's the type of commitment. That someone has to make to be able to do this type of work effectively. It's a big
1: commitment. I mean, it's a big commitment. You're traveling. It it, it does cost some money. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and lie. You know, it's. Uh, I think they kind of do that on purpose. They kind of you know weed people out. A lot of people want to do this, but they don't have the commitment to do this, or maybe they don't have the time. It's a lot. You know, they have kids, they have families, they have a job. Again, not all treatment centers will support this you know it's hard to send one of your people to to go and do this five times at least right it's a big investment there's always the fear too that you're going to do that and leave and then they'll just sort of leave right which is fair which is fair i mean business is business if they send you out and do this and you're doing it and they're not taking care of you after that because essentially you're building them a program within a program it's a commitment on both sides it really is gotcha so will yes sir in the words of howard stern you're a fan right i am
0: in the words of howard stern we've said it all okay we've said it so i think so is there anything else we want to get in anything you want to bring attention to or anybody's work or anything you want to plug or anything like that before we wrap it up
1: i think i'm good i mean i'm really honored to be here I mean, I think I think this is really, really cool. I think this is an incredible idea. I wish more people come and sit down with you and and talk about cool things and natural things, right? Organic things and just ways that we could help people of all kinds. And it's it's really the highlight of my career. I mean, I'm 41. And like I said, I was in a dark, dark place at 35. I Didn't even know if I wanted to keep doing this. I'm blessed. Got my wife and two kids and my mom and life is good, man. Life is good. I feel good. I'm reaching a lot of people. I love where I work. The staff there is incredible and supportive and they're all skilled in their own way. I'm blessed. That's all I could say.
0: One of the ways I measure the success of these interviews, yeah, is at the end you get this feeling like I like the guy even more than I did before I talked to him. And so that must mean that something good came out, you know, and that's how I feel about it. So I I feel like we did good, man. And I really appreciate you making the time from your very busy schedule to come out and talk to me on a Saturday. It means a lot to me that you'd be willing to do this. You know, I appreciate it. And I hope we reach some people
1: and, you know, that it promotes the good work that you and the folks at Beachway are doing. Thank for. you so much, Eric, for having me. And I I know coming here on a Saturday is, is hard, too. You know, you have a family and you work a lot and you have a great reputation. So, you know, this this was really cool for me and I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you again, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting out there on December 10th and seeing you present. I think it's going to be great and fine and fun being able to see firsthand what we were talking about today, kind of more of where it happens and you going into some depth about that and meeting some, some of the folks from your team. Thank you so much. All right. Awesome, man. All right, folks, this has been Will Schleifer from Beachway and Will Schleifer also has a private practice episode of the Good Counsel podcast. Thank you for sitting with us.